cross, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond decree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his dark glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died from man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love that I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. You're familiar with this chorus? Won't you sing this with me? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are indeed most grateful and frankly, deep debtors. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for the finished work of the cross and that the tomb is empty. Thank You, Lord, that Your place on that cross was the culmination of a plan that was set forth and established before the foundation of the world whereby You chose those upon whom You would place Your affection and set them apart to be adopted as Your children. So Lord, we are recipients of that good grace. And we celebrate it this morning by opening up Your Word and we ask that You would be our teacher. I ask, Lord, that You would help me make simple the profound. And that You would cause Your Word to do a mighty work in all of us. For some in this room to reveal that you are in fact Jesus, the resurrected King. And for others in this this room who have embraced the truth of the Gospel and you as Lord and Savior, may it be a reminder of your goodness and grace. And may we come to this place running, but may we leave marveling. In Jesus' name, Amen. Luke chapter 24, if you'll join me in that passage, probably my favorite account of all the Gospels, which share the story of the resurrection, and I'm looking forward to walking through the parts of this together. It had been a long week, to say the least. The week had started out with excitement as crowds ushered Jesus into Jerusalem, waving palm branches and laying cloaks down on on the ground in front of Him so that the colt that He was riding upon 
could stand upon it and not the dusty ground. They were rejoicing and they were praising God for all His mighty works that He had done and that they had seen Jesus perform. And together, they were all singing kind of in this unison shout and praise. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's how the week began. But the week didn't end with shouts of celebration. In fact, they ended with shouts from the crowd, jeering shouts of crucify Him. Crucify Him. And on that Friday, they did. Just like He had told His disciples would happen. Crucifixion, as you know, it marks the the low point of the longest week in history and, and it really serves as the fulcrum upon which all of human history pivots. Because it was on that day that Jesus, with some of the final breaths in His lungs, uttered out these words from the cross, It is finished. And what was finished was his mission. What was finished was his purpose for coming to earth. And here is what his purpose was. He came in to step in as our substitute. He was the innocent. We were the guilty. He took upon our sins upon himself. And he willingly paid the full price of the sin of the world. Paul would write in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus sacrificed His own life so that whoever would believe in Him could have everlasting life in Him. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that death could not hold Him. And thanks be to God that the grave could not keep Him contained. Three days after they laid his body in a borrowed tomb, the tomb was found to be empty because he had risen just as he said he would. And Luke records the whole story. In Luke chapter 24, he provides a survey of that resurrection day and he he does it by sharing three different scenes. One scene happens way early in the morning, and then it transitions into the next scene, which is in the middle of the afternoon, closing off with the final scene, early evening. In the morning, two angels are going to approach the women with a probing question. Women who had gone to the tomb to prepare Jesus' bodies, they're going to approach Him with a probing question, and then they're going to appeal to the words of Jesus as a proof of His resurrection. Later on in that afternoon, Jesus will Himself join two travelers who are leaving Jerusalem and headed to Emmaus. And and He too is going to ask them a probing question. And He's going to appeal to the Old Testament as proof for His resurrection. And then in the evening, Jesus is going to appear in the middle of a room where the rest of the disciples are and they're talking all about it. And he's going to ask two more questions. And he's going to make an appeal to his body. And finally, and supremely, 
He's going to make another appeal to the Scriptures as the final proofs for the resurrection. It was a full day. Capping off a full week. Or beginning the rest of history. I tend to think it's the latter. So before we look at that chapter in its totality, albeit in abbreviated form, it might be helpful for us to remind ourselves just why Luke wrote this book. The early part of Luke chapter 1, the first four verses actually, he tells us in his own words why he wrote it. And listen to what he says. He writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, He's not pointing to us. He's pointing to a guy named Theophilus for whom he wrote this book. Maybe Theophilus charged him to do so, but he's writing this orderly account to his friend Theophilus. Had Theophilus been confused about the gospel? Had he heard all the components of the gospel and yet still needed one more help to nudge him along in the process of Realizing and recognizing that Jesus was the Christ. Paul, not Paul, Luke writes this letter, this book for Theophilus. And here's why he did it. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, painstakingly is precise in the way he orders his book. And in his book, he will include details that were going to be most helpful for Theophilus to see and embrace the whole picture of the gospel. He will bookend his book with words and announcements of peace. You remember that. The first bookend of this announcement of peace from the writings of Luke come when the announcement of the birth of Jesus was fresh on the scene, right? And the the sky was filled with angels and it was a heavenly chorus of angels and they announced the birth of Jesus this way, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is blessed. The second of the bookends will come from Jesus Himself when he appears in that final room with his disciples in Luke 24, where we're looking. On, they're startled, they're frightened, and Jesus speaks into the moment with these words. Peace to you. And I just want to stop and say that Jesus has provided the way for peace. And if you're here in this room looking for things, looking for peace, Look unto Jesus and find that peace. Luke was a physician. He was a Gentile. He was a historian. He wrote the longest of all four of the Gospels. And he included in that Gospel the miraculous details of Jesus' birth, how He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and how He was born in the Virgin Mary. He includes stories from Jesus' childhood 
And then he transitions, including things that Jesus taught. And of course, he included things like the miracles that he had performed. Eight different times in this letter, Luke will give details around the table that Jesus shared meals with other people. And and we get snapshots into the intimate details of the things that he shared over the course of a meal. Twice, Luke will include parables that none of the other Gospels will include. The parables like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. It would be difficult to say that any part of Luke's book were more important than others, but, it's, but certainly every top ten list of key things from the book of Luke would have to include those times when Jesus Himself prophesied of His coming death. In fact, three different times, He would tell His disciples and followers, this is going to happen to Me. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus is quoted saying this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again in chapter 18, Luke is going to include similar words saying this, for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. These prophecies uttered from the lips of Jesus were to confirm before it happened why he came. Everything happened the way that Jesus said it would happen. The words of his prophecies all came true. He was crucified, dead, and buried. So imagine Theophilus reading this book that Luke writes for him. And when he nears the end of the book and reading of the barbaric crucifixion of Jesus, I bet he turned to the last page and having remembered the three different times that Jesus said, this is going to happen to me, and then it happened, and then he remembered reading Jesus' word saying, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. And he turns the page to chapter 24 and he said, this is where they're going to be sitting around the campfire waiting on Jesus to make His appearance. But imagine His surprise. When He turns the page to 24, the last chapter in the book, and He reads what we're going to see today. Because although chapter 24 includes most of Jesus' closest followers, they were all filled with confusion. Fear, doubt, and hopelessness. And this is where we'll join the story. Looking at chapter 24, verses 1, there'll be three points to this message as we walk through, looking at each of the individual times, all of which are located and contained within the title of this message, an unfinished task, an unfinished meal, and a finished work. And the opening pages of chapter 24 pick up where the previous chapter left off. Notice number one, an unfinished task. i got to tell you that I'm taken by the fact that it was the women that had come with Jesus from Galilee that were the last to leave the tomb. 
Chapter 23, the last verses tell us that. And they were the first to return on the first day of the week. Notice these words in chapter 23. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So they were the last to leave the tomb. They would be the first to return. And they would also have the high privilege of being the first to testify to others. Interesting to Luke, choose to tell this portion of the story, placing the onus of responsibility upon telling others about the resurrected Christ to a people that everyone in the society would have ignored. It's akin to how Luke included in the opening pages of his book, putting the onus of responsibility on the shepherds, the outsiders, to go into town and share the good news about what they had just heard. But Jesus was taken off the cross. He was placed in the tomb on Friday night. And it was the women who followed Him to the tomb. Witnessing where the tomb was and how Jesus was placed inside, they then left to go prepare spices and ointments that would be used later to embalm Jesus. And because Sabbath was beginning just at that moment, their last act of love for their master and teacher would have to wait until the first light of the first day of the week. Look at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Let me stop from reading just for a moment to say, listen, remember, they had come not to praise the Lord, but to bury Him, right? It never occurred to them. We get every impression from Luke's writing to Theophilus that it never occurred to them that His body would be anywhere else but where they had seen it last. Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold... Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Matthew would describe the angels' dazzling apparel as being white as snow, making their appearance like lightning. Listen, I cannot fault I can't fault any of these folks in Luke chapter 24, but I certainly can't fault them for the confusion they experienced when they couldn't find Jesus' body, nor can I blame them for being scared out of their minds at the sight and appearance of these angels, right? Listen, confusion is not a bad thing. If it proceeds finally coming to a greater knowledge of the truth, Especially the truth of Jesus. The angels could not have asked a more profound question. Probing question. Profound question in the moment. Profound question for us this morning in this room. 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Don't miss what they said next. They didn't point out their dazzling clothes and their lightning-like appearance so as to convince them that, hey, what we're showing you is real. Do you not see my duds here? They don't walk up to the women and knock on their head. If you're older, you'll recognize this and say, uh, hello, McFly, listen, it's empty. We, he said, you know, they don't do any of that. They just in that moment pointed them back to the words of Jesus Himself. And say, don't you remember? Listen to what the angel said. Remember how He told you when he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, he would rise? Luke includes things here. They're hints that God, by His grace, are turning the lights on for these women. They remembered. They believed. And they returned. Luke tells us that the women remembered, which is to say that they believed, and believing, they returned to tell others. What happened when they got there? Luke 24 tells this whole story. Read it in detail. I can't do it justice this morning, but when they, when they get to everyone else, no one believed their testimony. Peter had to see him for himself though. And he took off and ran to the tomb. The book of John tells us that Peter didn't run alone, but he ran with John and John actually beat him there. I wonder if John and Peter ribbed each other for the rest of their adult life. Hey, you remember that time I beat you to the tomb? But all Luke is telling us is about Peter. And I would contend that Peter needed to see Jesus really badly. When Peter arrives, he stooped into the tomb and he found the linen cloths that had been used to wrap Jesus up. And, and those linen cloths were lying right where they had been when Jesus had been laid into the tomb. No person stolen from that tomb would have had the people stealing him unwrap it and place it right beside it. They would have yanked him out and taken him away, but those linen cloths were right there where he had been left. It was Sinclair Ferguson that planted this idea in my mind this week that Peter arrived to the tomb running, but he left marveling. Notice what verse 12 says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what he had found. By God's grace, Peter is beginning to see, and he's beginning to understand that Jesus had risen. Could it be that he could also forgive me, Peter's? Not saying we don't record that and we, we don't see that recorded, but I got to wonder if it's on his mind. He's run to the tomb. Is this story, could this be true? Is he risen? 
The linen cloths are there. Who knows what's going on in his mind? But who can blame him if he's wrestling with this thought of, can he forgive me for such a heinous failure that I've done for him, not even being willing to acknowledge that I knew him? The answer for Peter would be a resounding yes. And the answer for you this morning, no matter how far you have fallen, (laughs) we serve a gracious and forgiving God that for His children, His adopted children, that confess their sin before Him, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Run to Christ and be restored. And this is a lesson for all of us. It matters more how we leave this morning than how it is that we arrived. Maybe we acquiesce to a spouse. Yeah, I'll I'll go this week. Or to a parent. Or maybe you came on your own accord, but you came with a heavy heart. It matters more about how you leave than how you arrived. Are you like those women who were the first on the scene? Looking for life among the dead things of this world? Are you looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places? Are you looking for belonging in all the wrong places? Look to Jesus and live. And be encouraged with this. Because He rose from the grave, all who trust and believe in Him can be raised to new life. And all those who have been raised to new life in this, on this earth can look forward when we've breathed our last here on this earth that He will raise us up to be with Him. So that where He is, we may be also. Or you like Peter, in desperate need of forgiveness and a new start, a second chance through repentance. If so, look to Christ and marvel at His grace. That was early morning. Probably before the sun even came up. But then we get into the afternoon to a scene that I will speak of briefly. This is the unfinished meal that we see in Luke chapter 24. It begins with verse 13 and it goes all the way to 35. But what I want you to see starts at the very beginning of verse 13. That very day. Interesting. They were looking for Jesus in the tomb and didn't find Him. And now you get to the afternoon and they're with Him and can't see Him. Until the Lord by His grace opens up their eyes. Which He is kind to do. But that very day, two of Jesus' followers, having heard the testimony of both the women and by now Peter, they began to walk the seven miles, presumably home, right? To Emmaus. I kind of believe these 
two were married, husband and wife, but we don't know that. It just seems to kind of make sense. They get to the end of their journey and invite Jesus in. But I, I take it that it, it makes no, has no bearing on the story or the impact of what's going on. But as they walked, what we do know is they talked it all out, right? Maybe they discussed the whole week, starting with the triumphal entry as Jesus came into Jerusalem. Or maybe started with that terrible day on Friday when the sky turned black and Jesus was mocked and spit upon and hung upon the tree to die. Maybe they talked about Saturday, a day that we know nothing about. And how they might have spent that day in rest, but their hearts were far from resting. And maybe they talked about the fact that their hope had been gone and crushed. Maybe they talked about what the women had said. And even what Peter said, because they reference it. We don't know exactly what they're talking about. We do know they're talking so much that Jesus comes up to them on this road and approaches them, asks the next probing question. Each of these times of the day has a probing question. The last one has two, but this one is this. And I'll put it in Chris Gaither vernacular, a little southern ease for you. Had Jesus been speaking in the uh, dialect of Ringgold, Georgia, he might have walked up to those two and said, hey y'all, what you talking about? Cleopas is the name of one of those two that were given in Luke chapter 24. He then proceeds to share with Jesus what some people refer to as the gospel according to Cleopas. He tells a great bit of history about Jesus' past. What he'd been great at. What he had done. What he had said. They even talk about what had happened up to that point this week. But what he leaves out is the resurrection. In fact, Cleopas ends his words to Jesus with these words. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Michael Ramsey has written these words, the gospel without the resurrection is not merely a gospel without its final chapter. It's no gospel at all. Had Jesus consulted me about what to do next, I would probably have advised him to pull out his trump card and say, Guys, hello, it's me. But he doesn't do that. He does something better. He opens up the Scriptures to them. Be reminded what the angels did when they saw the women at the tomb. They pointed them back to the words of Jesus. Now on the road of Emma to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? But He points them back to the words of Scripture, the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets. And I love this passage. It's a seven-mile walk. I don't know where Jesus joined the journey, but let's say it was mile one, and now you've got six miles to go, and He's got 20 minutes per mile if they're making some good time. And that's not a whole lot of time to do the greatest sermon in the world, but this is maybe a six or seven mile sermon whereby Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
He interpreted to them in all of the Scripture the things concerning Himself. Can you imagine? When they got near their place, Jesus acted as if He was going to go on, but they urged Him to come in and spend the night as would have been customary to have been taken place, right? We don't know why they were unable to recognize Jesus for who He was along that road, although they were His followers. Luke just tells us that they were kept from being able to see who He was. But then He comes in after opening up the Scriptures to them and He sits down and has a meal with them. And when they sat down to the table, Jesus broke the bread and their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. And Luke wrote that Jesus immediately vanished from their sight. We're going to have a couple of folks over at the house this afternoon for lunch. And what if a meal wasn't finished because someone vanished from the table? Jesus vanishes. But instead of going, where'd he go? They are overwhelmed with the sensation of salvation being felt in their heart. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures? This is the effect of the powerful Scriptures that point to an ever-powerful Jesus. Because Jesus does a restorative, rebirthing work in all of us. And we learn about it through His Word. For some of you church history buffs, the language that I've put on the screen here, that their hearts were warmed, may make you think of a testimony of John Wesley, who upon his conversion said, I felt as if my heart had been strangely warmed. Interestingly enough, John Wesley moved to the United States to preach. He was an ordained minister, but he came here to preach the gospel in hopes that not only people would be impacted, but that he would be saved as a result of it. So he does, and God was kind to open up his heart. In fact, there at Aldersgate, he said this. Well, he wrote about this in his autobiography about what happened at Aldersgate. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I look upon all the world now as my parish. This apparently was the response of those two from Emmaus. Because they left immediately. And you remember what they did? They returned to Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, 
They found the, the eleven, the disciples, up in a room, and the doors were closed and the door was locked. We don't learn that from Luke chapter 24, but we learn that from one of the other gospel accounts. And we learned that those doors were locked. And, and they were thinking, now you know what they, we don't know what they talked about when they were going to Emmaus. We don't know what they talked about when they're headed back to Jerusalem. Listen, here's what we'll say. You started out, and you start out with this, this, and this. And, you, and then I'll take over. When we, when we get into the house and we, we set that food down there and he broke the bread, I'll take that part. Who knows what they talked about. But they get into that room and their thunder is stolen because... The news is already spread in the room. Peter's come in and he's shared the good news about a visitation that Jesus has had with him. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on this screen. But they discovered that they were not the only ones with news. The party had already started, right? But they added to the news by sharing about what had taken place on the road to Emmaus. You see this pattern going on in these two stories? These two accounts? The Scriptures were open to both groups. Women and the two on the road to Emmaus. God opened up their hearts. And then they took off with their lives to tell their story. The exact thing that witnesses do today. Right? This leads us to the evening time where Jesus, He doesn't allude to, but He speaks of a finished work. The entire group is in that room and they're all talking it over behind closed doors and locked doors and all of a sudden, kids, are you sitting down? Jesus appears and no doors open. And when he walks into that room, he utters these words. And it, it happens to be Luke's bookend of this book letter that he's written to Theophilus. It began with angels speaking peace. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And now Jesus walking in, the work having been finished. And speaks to his disciples this greeting. And it's not just a, hey, how are y'all? It is a, Peace to you. And now it's possible and tangible because the risen, resurrected Jesus is speaking it. The disciples are still frightened, right? And they're thinking they're seeing a spirit. And who wouldn't think that? The door hasn't opened, but He's arrived. And this led to Jesus asking two more questions. First off, He asked this. Hey, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he does something excellent. It's, it's, it's a time when he's not pointing to the Scriptures. He's pointing to his own body as a confirmation. And he says these words, See my hands and my feet that it's myself. It's me. Touch me. You touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he asked something else. Let every teenage young man in this room ask his mom. Have you anything here to eat? And the second answer 
Or the second question was answered by someone giving him some broiled fish, which Luke points out to Theophilus specifically and clearly. In verse 43, he includes these words. Why? To help assuage the confusion that Theophilus might have and to do the same for us. And he says, and he took it. And he ate it before them. And in the same way that no spirit has a body and hands and feet that you can touch, neither does one have an appetite. And then Jesus did what had been done all day long. And what you can confidently run to every day of your life. He pointed them to the Scriptures. He opened their eyes to see what was before them. He gave them understanding. And He commissioned them to proclaim the good news to the nations. That good news was to include what they had experienced. Repentance, turning from your sin and running toward Jesus. Repentance and forgiveness is inseparably linked to Jesus' substitutionary. He was the substitute. He was the innocent. We were the guilty. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in the place of those who rightfully deserved it. You can't have the gospel without the resurrection. But with the resurrection, you have the gospel. And in the gospel, you have life. But it is not enough just to know about the Gospel. It is not enough just to know Jesus. Every person in this chapter was convinced they knew all there was to know about Jesus. They loved Him. They had placed their hope and then their future in this man. They followed Him to the cross. They had walked with Him, talked with Him. They've been in the boat fishing while He's teaching on the shore. They've been in a boat struggling to make it to the other side when He walked on water, gets in the boat and speaks to the waters. One of the closest friends in my life is a guy named Terry. We've run just about every marathon that each and us, he and I have done, we've done it together. And I can remember the day specifically, and we've walked through some deep waters, talking about our families, our wives, our kids, our relationships, all these things, and it's just a tight relationship. But I remember specifically running on a trail one day with him and him beginning to geek out. He's probably one of the smarter people that I know. Engineer, he's got a PhD in food science. Who does that? He does. And, and I was just beginning to piece together the fact that as he was telling me what had happened that week, he had been in China leading a, some type of international delegation discussion about food of all things. I thought, see, you're that guy. I, I just thought you were the guy that ran on Saturdays with me and sometimes during the week I had no idea you were like a, you're like smart. And People, he'd done the same thing in Africa and China, and it was that moment as he's geeking out telling me about some of the things he was in the middle of, and he rarely did that, that I thought, oh, I only thought I knew you. But in that moment, the light became a little more clear with me. 
Women at the tomb thought they knew Him. And you can know Him and not know Him. But God, by His grace, through the voice of angels, pointed them back to the words of Jesus. And they believed. Peter knew Him intimately. Had walked a lot of miles with Jesus. But he came to know him intimately through the gospel. The same with Cleopas and the person with him and those disciples. And I pray you. My prayer has been as we've just simply walked through the story of the 24th chapter of Luke, is that by God's grace you will not content yourself to be knowledgeable about Jesus but that you will be reborn by Him. And that you will run to the Word, and as you run to the Word, run to Christ. And receive from Him life. And it is a life that will echo with burning in your heart. Not heartburn. But the Spirit of God who takes up residence within you will affirm the legitimacy of your relationship with Him. Because it's not just a knowledge. It's life. It's a life that's made possible because of the resurrection. And it's a life that provides hope for the future and marching orders for today. I remind you, as I did earlier, that Peter came running, but he left marveling. How will you leave this morning? Will you continue to exhaust yourself by looking for the living among the dead? Or will you believe that He who has offered you peace through His suffering can give it freely? Because He can. And I want you to receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our flesh, we look for the right thing in all the wrong places. But God, you have provided Jesus. And it is in Jesus alone that we might have life. Before His crucifixion, He told His disciples that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. And and now that we've kind of talked about Luke, I wonder if they even got it then. But thanks be to God, you followed through with your mission You fulfilled everything that was ever said about you so that everyone who believes in you could have life in you. Not life in good works. Not life in a good name. Not life in a good family. But life in you, Jesus. Father, thank you that what is true of your son Jesus is true of those of us who are united with him by faith. 
we recognize that we were born into this world sinful, broken, and separated from relationship with you. But you provided the means by which our relationship with you could be restored and our life could be born again. And that means was Jesus. God, thank you for your patience in the way that you continually offer us ways to hear from your scripture and even preached word, the message of the gospel. Thank you that the message that the people in Luke 24 had heard and heard and heard and heard and heard, you were patient through Jesus to tell them one more time. And in that moment, much like Wesley, they were saved by God's grace. Or may the effect of the risen Christ in the empty tomb be ours, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen.